Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The puckishly whimsical life and times of poet and filmmaker James Broughton is the topic of this edition of Radio Curious in a visit with Stephen Silla, the producer and director of Big Joy, a biographical film of James Broughton. Broughton believed that in order to live an authentic life, we should each follow our own weird. In fact, he says, I don't know what the left is doing, said the right hand, but it looks fascinating. And in his own words, he goes on to say, I may be infecting the whole body, said the head, but they'll never amputate me. Stephen Silla and I visited by phone from his home near Seattle, Washington on Mother's Day, 2014. And he began by telling us what drew him to make a film about the life of James Broughton. James Broughton at a radical fairy gathering in 1989, where by chance we were assigned to the same cabin, he and his partner, Joel Singer. And we became friends, he became a mentor, and we would spend holidays at each other's homes and so forth, uh, and James and I would go on writing retreats together. When I met him, he said uh, he was working on his memoir, coming unbuttoned, and he said, I hate prose, it's so prosaic. And I said, oh, James, I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist, I've been writing prose all my life. And kind of tongue-in-cheek, I said, um, I'll help you with prose if you help me with poetry. And it ended up that he helped me a lot more than I helped him, but it was quite a wonderful, creative relationship. And after he died in 1999, I really wanted to do something to bring his work back to the world. I assumed it would be a book, since my background was in writing. But I realized, in fact, because he made 23 wildly different experimental films, you couldn't really tell his story without showing some of his images, some of his poetic images. So we just, I, I then kind of freaked out and realized that I couldn't do this by myself. It had to be really good. So I called my friend Eric Slade, who had made a beautiful documentary about Harry Hay, uh, who happened to be the founder of the Radical Fairies, and ironically also had an affair with James Broughton when they were both students at Stanford in the 1930s. And uh, Eric said, I'd be happy to work with you as long as I don't have to raise money. So that's where the project got started. So when you put it together, watching the film, it looks like the effort is to break down the boundaries between language and moving images. Was that your intention? <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Um, that's, that was certainly James's intention in his films. And I think we tried to make a film that wasn't an experimental film like his, but was a documentary that was in the spirit of his experimental films. So I think, yes, it was a goal of mine to take people on a journey 
that broke down those barriers between language and, and moving images. And the animation was a big part of that. What, what I gleaned from Big Joy was one of the bases of James Broughton's life was to explore your weird, uh, to do whatever. And what I'm interested in is if you can talk about whatever that whatever is. <laughs> well, I think James really celebrated the fact that each person is a total individual. And he knew that the word weird comes from a Celtic root that means fate or destiny. So my interpretation of follow your own weird is to be true to the core of your own creativity while at the same time being on your creative edge. Uh, so we've been kind of teaching people the American Sign Language for follow your own weird, which is you make three fingers into the letter W and then you kind of make them scrunch across in a kind of wiggly mode, the word weird. And when James used it, he said, don't make the film anyone else can make, make the film only you can make. And I think that that's what he tried to do in his films, and we also tried to use that as a motto in our film. He was a gay man when it was not um, safe or acceptable to be openly gay. Exactly. And he considered himself pansexual, um, meaning he could be sexually attracted to men, women, or Mother Earth. But um, he, I think, my interpretation is that he was a gay man, having read his journals from when he was 13, and, you know, seeing these themes in his journals over the years. Well, even the extent to which his mother would reduce his allowance when he was an early teenager by 25 cents whenever he behaved in an effeminate manner. Exactly. So he, he was obviously a gay man. And, and at that point, they sent him off to military school, which turned out to be a great awakening for him because he was around all these boys. <laughs> I think it was a, an opening for him to realize that there were other boys who were also that way. It made him feel a little bit less alone, even though he got kicked out of the school for having sex with one of the boys. Well, that goes back to something you said a few minutes ago, uh, that you met James Broughton at a radical fairy gathering. What is a radical fairy gathering? In 1979, there was a, a call that was put out by Harry Hay and Mitch Walker and Don Kilhefner to gay men to shed, as he said in the call, the ugly green frog skin of hetero imitation and discover the beautiful princess within. And uh, that gathering attracted 100-some men to the desert of Arizona. And ever since then, people have been gathering, in, uh, usually in rural places, to kind of discover the what who are we, where are we going, and what from here um, questions. And since the 70s and 80s, women have started, and straight men have started feeling attracted to these gatherings, and uh, also trans people. So it's been kind of an evolutionary thing, but basically it's a group of mostly men who are interested in exploring the intersections between spirituality and sexuality. 
Can you tell us how James Broughton would characterize the intersection of spirituality and sexuality? He developed this concept that he called the God body, the idea that your body is a temple, and so is everybody else's, and that you should worship first your own body and and, and other bodies, too. So the idea that he, he really believed that the body is a manifestation of spirit, and that you can get in touch with the divine through the body, not just sexuality, but sensuality. And he certainly lived that way. When I met him, he was 75, and he was the most lively 75-year-old I had ever met. How did he manifest or become able to arrive at the intersection of spirituality and sexuality? Well, he studied all the religions. He was a very literate man, and so he grew up, I think, in an Episcopalian background, and then he got into Buddhism and Hinduism and Taoism, and Zen. He played a lot with Alan Watts. So he was able to... um, He he also said that it's more important to live poetically than to be a good poet. And I think his attempt to live poetically was part of his merging of spirituality and sexuality into some kind of a vibrant being. When Being with him when he was older, it was amazing how many people were attracted to him, and it was not... Um, just because he was a witty old man, he also embodied a kind of spiritual sexuality that I think people found attractive. And for somebody in their 80s, that was really something. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Steve Silla from his home near Seattle, Washington. He's the director and producer of Big Joy, a movie that portrays the life of James Broughton. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Steve, it's the paradigm that has shifted towards the current station of more open sexuality. Not only heterosexual or transsexual or bisexual, but it being discussed openly in the media now. I'd like you to talk about what intention you think that James Broughton may have had if he did have an intention to shift that paradigm. Oh, he definitely wanted to shift that paradigm. He was thinking that actually if people were not so afraid to touch one another, that there would be no war. Uh, he, He really believed that. And so his work was a lot about shifting that paradigm. And beyond what you show in the movie Big Joy, can you tell us his efforts? Well, yes. He was a member of the, both the Radical Fairies and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, which is a group of drag nuns that formed in the late 70s to do service and ended up being very important in the fight against AIDS. So James would perform with them. He would, you know, he would write poems like like Kingdom Come that goes, while I bask in your radiating arms, my sore coccyx and my cool buns 
warm their shivers against your loins. Remember, my persistent St. Christopher, how you waded across the swamp of my fear and lifted me up to a new flight plan. When you launched our spangled blast-off, I knew you might lead me astray, but I knew we would never go wrong. You pulled out every planetary stop to fortify the crescendo of my pleasure. What more is there to orbit for? How should I crave any further crown when I reign supreme in a radiant kingdom, the omnipotent warmth of your arms? And that was one of many poems he wrote to his partner, Joel Singer, who he met when James was 61 and Joel was 26. And they ended up living together for 25 years. So another one of the reasons I wanted to make this film was to show that you can meet your soulmate at any age. Well, that's what I want to talk about. James Broughton said, I got married because I didn't think it would ever come to me in this lifetime. And it is the it that I'd like you to address that he didn't think would come to him in this lifetime. Well, I think the it that he was talking about there in his journal was the manifestation of his angel, Hermie, or Hermes, who came to him when he was three years old and told him that he was a poet. Um, And I think that Joel, he felt, was a manifestation a human manifestation of that, that angel. And so he was saying to himself in his journal, I, I didn't think that you, Joel, or Hermie, would ever come to me in this lifetime. So I got married. Part of what I gleaned from what James said was his quest for an authentic life. And he says that there comes a time when... Uh, the price you pay for living an inauthentic life is too high. It's like a near-death experience. It creates an energy that flows through you. How would the authentic life be characterized? In the film, the psychiatrist uh, Don Kilhefner talks about James um, leaving his wife and going off with Joel Singer which is kind of the, um, I guess, in some ways, the climax of the film, uh, as being his final or you know ultimate attempt to be his authentic self. And um, the film shows that, but we also were fortunate to be able to interview his ex-wife, who still feels uh, hurt by his departure. It was really an amazing interview. It was one of the first ones that we did. It was clear that she really, really still feels the pain of that loss. And at the same time, she celebrates the uh, 12 or so years that they lived together. Yet James' daughters chose not to be interviewed. Yes. Actually, um, Susanna's daughter was the younger daughter who helped us get the interview with Susanna. So I feel like she was extremely cooperative in the project. The other daughter, Gina James, who is the daughter that James and Pauline Kale produced, wouldn't answer my calls for the first two or three years. But finally she did, and she said, I, I do want to talk to you. I'm, I'm interested in this film because I didn't know my father very well. 
but neither of them wanted to talk about him on camera because it might have been too awkward for, for both of them, as it was for the son, I think. In looking back on your life, Steve Silla, can you share with us the effect that making this movie has had on you? I think it's had a huge effect. Um, after having been a journalist and facilitator for most of my life, suddenly putting it all together in film was both the hardest thing and the most joyous thing I think I've ever done. It was It took four and a half years to produce the film. It was um, very frustrating at times. There were many things like... We never found a photograph of James Broughton and Pauline Kael together, so we found a way to tell that story that makes it work. But um, we spent a lot of time trying to find interviews on film with James Broughton, and there really aren't very many that exist. So, you know, just the hard work of finding all those archival images, putting it together with music, um organizing the whole thing, it was kind of a miracle to me that it all came together so well. And one reason it came together well, I think, is that it was a, a passion project. It was a, a work of art made by friends, who all of whom wanted to somehow do a good job of communicating the spirit of James Broughton and his work. So it changed me by giving me a whole set of new skills um, and has made me interested, much more interested in cinema. This was your first film? It's my first feature film. I had done small um, public service type spots before, but that's nothing like a feature film. What effect do you think the silent films, and in particular the Keystone Cops, had on James Broughton's work? James was very influenced both by the the poetic French films and the silent films like Chaplin and Keystone Cops, particularly his early films, uh, Looney Tom could almost be a Chaplin film. Uh, just some of the movements and some of the storytelling are very reminiscent. And when he was a child, he writes in his autobiography, Coming Unbuttoned, that he went to the movies every weekend and so he watched these comedies, and they it made a deep impression on his visual language, as well as his sense of humor. There was another mention in the film that I wanted to ask you about, and that is every film comes across as a point in time. Obviously, we can't make a film about the future that's accurate. We can make a film now about history. In looking at the films of James Broughton over time, of, of the 21 that he made, is there a particular theme that you see evolving in looking at his work retrospectively? I think he was really interested in love in all of its manifestations and unlocking the ability of people to be playful and loving. Um, and his films kind of show that again and again. 
in a way, the, the Bed, his 1967 film, which is probably his most famous and most successful, which features all kinds of people in various states of dress and undress, romping and rollicking around a bed that rolls in and out of the hills of Marin County, it, it's just such a playful film, and it, it evokes all these other literary illusions, like all the world's a bed, James would say. And he also then made a film when he was with Joel, and his films became much more explicitly gay, called Devotions, which is a film that just gives vignettes of different ways that men can love one another. And some of them are sexual, and some of them are cooking together, and some of them are laying in bed with their pets. It's just a a beautiful um, kind of update on the bed in a way with different kinds of tableaus. So I think his his main theme was love in all of its manifestations. But he wasn't afraid to go into the dark side either. The dark side is is a theme that flows throughout the film. It's true. I, I wanted to make a film that was uh, authentic to my own journalistic sensibilities. So that's why I wanted to say that the daughters didn't want to be interviewed. And I wanted to show that living a life of following your weird and being big joy, which he became in the latter part of his life when he actually started using that language after his publisher, Jonathan Williams, called him big joy, um, that it's not always a pure and simple road. It's complex. It's human. It, other people may be hurt in the, in the process of one being one's own authentic self. And certainly James struggled with his own dark side. One of the big surprises to me, because when I knew him, he was a pretty jolly old man, but he was very depressed and almost suicidal in his 30s. And uh, you really can see that in some of his early poetry. And that was at the time of World War II. Do you think that that event had an effect on his uh, depression? Yes and no. I think the whole world was depressed when World War II happened. And his father died in the... His father, who had, had fought in World War I, died in the influenza epidemic of 1918. So he definitely felt the war. I remember when the first Gulf War happened, he wrote a whole poem called, called The Imp of the Inner Ear, which was about his frustration with war and... Um, maybe working out some of his earlier depression in his old age. Moving in uh, to the the decades after World War II, the 50s and the 60s, is when he moves his work towards the erotic and the sensual and uh, the ecstasy shown on the screen. Well, this was another surprise to me, this whole period of the San Francisco Renaissance in the immediate post-war years in the pre-beat years that um, you don't hear about as much as you hear about, for example, the beat generation. But it, it's quite clear that it was out of the soil of the San Francisco Renaissance that the beat movement grew. The, the, when Allen Ginsberg read Howell, it was read in San Francisco at the Sixth Gallery, which was a gallery created by the poet Jack Spicer and his friends. So you had this uh, amazing amalgam in San Francisco after the war of poets and playwrights and architects and dancers and um, 
all kinds of people working together, making new kinds of art. So James was very much in the center of all that. And then um, in the 60s, he became even... His, his eroticism in the 50s is, pretty, is more subdued, but in the 60s, with the hippie movement and so forth, uh, he was able to make The Bed, which was the film that had more frontal nudity than anybody had ever seen, in a, even in an art film at that point. It's a simple eroticism. It's a, it's a pure eroticism. It's a celebration of the body. It's not at all pornographic. Well, Steve Silla, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you uh, about yourself, and particularly about a eureka or aha moment that has influenced and, and changed the course of your life. There have been many eureka moments, but the one that really sticks with me is my first trip to Europe, which was when I was 20 years old in college. And it was on a study group that was studying the roots of Western civilization. So the trip went to Greece, Italy, and then France and England to look at the things that were taken from Greece and Italy. And that trip exposed me to different cultures. The Eureka experience was that not everybody lives the way I lived. Not everybody's as fortunate as I have been. And there's something that I can do about that to um, both be more understanding of other cultures and which also will enrich me, but also to help other people. I was very impacted by seeing the ugly Americans who seem to be just vacuum cleaning the the places where they were going instead of interacting with them, the people and the, the ideas and the places. And uh, Steve Silla, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? <laughs> well, um, I think if I can do, if I can just express more love every day, I will be happy. And finally, is there a film or a book that you could recommend to our listeners? You know, one of my favorite books, and I love to read it and reread it, is a novel by Tom Spanbauer, who James Broughton was also a big fan of and a friend of, uh, called The Man Who Fell in Love with the Moon. And I love that book because it manages in its own poetic and storytelling way to express things that, that are beyond words. So it uses words to express things that are beyond words. And the, there are things that are spiritual and sexual and um, very much in keeping with the themes of big joy. Well, Steve Silla, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. It's been a pleasure. Stephen Silla is the producer and director of the film Big Joy. The book he recommends is The Man Who Fell in Love with the Moon by Tom Spandauer. The music you hear is from the movie Big Joy. This program was recorded on Mother's Day 2014.
there are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email. Our address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482, or by phone, 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.